Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to see so many people out uh, this evening. Uh, just out of interest, uh, raise your hand if you were at the first session this morning. Uh, just to get a say. Oh, pretty much everyone. That, that's great. Okay, so I, I won't need to do too much uh, recapping here, but I will do a little bit of that. Let me get my magic wand again active here. Okay, it, it buzzed in my hand. That's probably a good thing. Okay. So uh, we're going to continue this evening on the theme of, of worldviews. We laid some foundations this morning. So let me just uh, remind you of what we covered in that morning session. Uh, we talked about uh, definition of a worldview. What, what in the world is a worldview? It's a view of the world. It's a, it's a sort of philosophical perspective on, on all of reality, uh, a filter through which we see the world and interpret the world and respond to things in the world. And I used the, the analogy, you remember, of a, a pair of spectacles. It's like a pair of spectacles through which you, you view the world and interpret it. And then I talked a bit about the benefits of worldview thinking, why it's useful to certainly understand your own worldview and think about that, but to, to understand how other people think about the world and why it is that there are such uh, deep disagreements in our society today. Even people who live next door to each other have very different views on political matters, ethical matters, and I said it's largely because of these competing worldviews that people have. But they can help us to analyze uh, people's religious faiths, uh, secular ideologies. It's a, it's a useful tool. And then we did a breakdown of a worldview into five areas. You'll remember this acronym, what it takes to make a worldview, T-A-K-E-S. Uh, theology, anthropology, knowledge, ethics, and salvation were the five areas, and we'll be putting that to work uh, in just a moment. And then the last thing I covered briefly at the end was tools for testing worldviews. You remember these uh, four tools that we can use for evaluating worldviews and ultimately for showing why the Christian worldview is the only worldview that corresponds to reality and makes sense of the world, the tools of coherence, of explanation, livability, and hope. And again, we'll be putting these to work in our evening session here. So let me give you a preview of where we're, we're going. So you've got a sort of a roadmap of what we're going to be covering in this session. I want to start uh, by talking about two prominent non-Christian worldviews. In our, in our culture today, particularly here in the United States, we encounter many, many different worldviews. You remember I introduced this morning by talking about just in, in the diversity of my own street, my own neighborhood, the different worldviews that are reflected there. But there are some that are more prominent than others, some that are more influential than others. And the biblical Christian worldview is certainly still very influential and significant today. But there are two prominent non-Christian worldviews competing with it. And the terms I'm going to be using will be naturalism and pantheism. Naturalism and pantheism. And uh, there, are, there are others to be sure, but I want to focus on these two in particular tonight. We're going to take a look at them, try and understand them, and apply a brief critique of each one. And then we're going to think about how we can apply this worldview thinking, these worldview tools in evangelism. We're going to think about two major challenges that we face in sharing the gospel, communicating the gospel with people in our day, and then I'm going to give you what I call a three-step approach to worldview evangelism. Just a little scheme uh, that, that may be helpful to you in having conversations with people. And if there's time at the end, we'll, we maybe have time for, for Q&A. We'll just see how, how things go. Okay. So let's start by looking at the first of these prominent non-Christian worldviews, and that is the worldview of naturalism. Naturalism. Here's the basic idea behind the worldview of naturalism. 
The natural universe is all there is. The natural universe is all there is. By the natural universe, what naturalists mean is basically the physical cosmos, the physical universe, uh, you know, all, the, all the, the planets and the stars and everything physical that we call this universe, the cosmos, everything that can be discovered by science and studied by science, that's all there is. That's the only thing that exists. The worldview of naturalism was epitomized by the 1980s TV series Cosmos, and it had a, had a tagline. It was presented by Carl Sagan. Some of you may even remember of it, may, maybe have even watched it at the time. But uh, at the beginning of this program, it said this, the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. And he didn't mean that to include God or anything supernatural or anything like that. The cosmos, the physical cosmos, is all that there is or ever will be. That's naturalism. Naturalism goes by other names. Uh, sometimes it's called materialism. That's more of an older term now, but sometimes it's called materialism. Uh, scientism, the view that the only things that exist are what science can tell us exist, that science can discover. Secular humanism, sometimes associated with naturalism. Most people who espouse a secular humanism would hold to this naturalistic worldview. Now, naturalism isn't the same thing as atheism. It's not just a synonym for atheism. Certainly, any naturalist will be an atheist. There are some atheists who aren't naturalists, but I would say that they are the exception rather than rule. Uh, most atheists in our culture today would, would espouse a naturalistic worldview, and I would say that it is the most common and arguably the most consistent form of atheism today. So it's definitely worth investigating and it's worth critiquing. Who would represent naturalism? Who would be some spokespersons for naturalism? Well, you probably recognize this guy, Richard Dawkins, a notorious critic of religion, um, probably the most famous uh, Darwinian uh, atheist in the world today. That's his book, his best-selling book, The God Delusion. I think it was published 2006. A uh, truly awful book in so many ways, um, but uh, influential. And certainly he espouses a naturalistic worldview. Um, another of the so-called new atheists is this guy, Sam Harris. Uh, Sam Harris is sort of the, the, the new vanguard of uh, atheism. Dawkins is kind of getting a little old and uh, on the sidelines now. Uh, but Sam Harris is still a very, very influential spokesman. He's written a number of books. Uh, the one that really made his name was called The End of Faith. And again, it was a critique of, um, of religion, religious faith. But he himself would espouse the worldview of naturalism. This also, I talked a moment ago about the series Cosmos. Well, that was, that was rebooted recently, uh, 2014. I think they, they rebooted it. And this time it was presented by Neil deGrasse Tyson. And uh, Tyson, again, advocates a naturalistic, scientific worldview. The same worldview that uh, Carl Sagan held, uh, deGrasse Tyson would also advocate. So what would be some of the details of this worldview of naturalism. Can we, can we analyze it using our tools, our T-A-K-E-S tools? Well, we can. Like any worldview, we can analyze it. So let's see how this worldview breaks down in these five areas, starting with theology. theology. Remember I said that every worldview, I said this this morning, every worldview has a theology 
even atheistic worldviews, they will just deny things about God. They will make negative statements about God, but they still have some ideas or claims about God. Well, the theology of naturalism is very simple. The only, only the physical cosmos exists. There are no, there's no God, there are no spirits, there are no souls. You do not have a soul, you just have a physical body, that's all there is to you. There are no supernatural beings. Anything beyond the physical world does not exist. The ultimate reality is just physical reality. And nothing exists that science can't ultimately explain. Naturalists won't claim that science can explain everything now, but in principle, the methods of science can explain and account for everything that exists. That's the basic theology of naturalism. What about a theory of, of humanity, an anthropology? Well, certainly naturalists have something to say about what kind of beings we are. A naturalist will say that we are entirely physical beings. We have uh, no souls. We have no spirits. We are just physical, biological organisms. Some naturalists will go so far as to say that we have no minds. We have brains, physical brains, but they will say, strictly speaking, there's no such thing as a mind. You have to go wonder what's going through their minds when they say these sorts of things. But they say that we are the products of evolutionary processes, undirected evolutionary Darwinian processes. We are basically highly evolved apes. That's the naturalistic creation story, the creation myth, we might say. That's the story of who we are and where we came from. What about knowledge? What can we know and how do we know it? Well, according to naturalism, scientific knowledge is the highest form of knowledge. It is the epitome of knowledge. The scientific method is the way that we can really gain certainty, we can really gain knowledge. Um, hardcore naturalists will say that scientific knowledge is the only form of knowledge. More moderate naturalists will maybe allow for other kinds of knowledge, but scientific knowledge is still the paradigm. It's still the highest form of knowledge. And so this worldview is closely associated with scientism. Scientism is the view that everything really has to be disclosed through the methods of rigorous empirical science, through, the, uh, through our senses, through observations, and forming rational theories on the basis of empirical observations. Ethics. What do naturalists say about ethics, about morality? Well, a naturalist has to say there are no transcendent values. There's no God, there's no divine law that comes from above. So they will deny that there are any moral absolutes or transcendent moral values, basically because they are atheists. But they will still try to develop some sort of naturalistic ethical theory. There are some naturalists who are nihilists. That is, they will deny that there are any true values. They'll say nothing's really right or wrong. Uh, but most naturalists don't want to go that far, and so they will advocate a naturalistic view of ethics, which will typically be a, a form of utilitarianism, which says that ethics is about promoting happiness. Uh, wh whatever is moral is what promotes the greatest happiness for the greatest number, the greatest number of people. So we just act in a way as to bring about the most happiness for everyone involved. That's utilitarianism. Or they'll be subjectivists. They'll try to ground morality in personal sentiments or feelings. So what is right is what, what feels right for you. Or, as I say, the more extreme forms um, of naturalism will be outright nihilist, de denying that there are any real moral values. You get different, different answers to this question. 
What about salvation? Remember, I defined this morning the salvation uh, aspect of a worldview as what does this worldview say about the basic human problem, what's wrong with the world, and how is it to be put right? There's a diagnosis and there's a prescription. So what is the diagnosis? Well, you'll get different answers from different naturalists. Um, a common answer is that there's too much suffering in the world. The problem with the world is that there are sentient organisms, human beings and often other uh, animals will be included in this. There's too much suffering, there's too much pain and not enough pleasure. And so the problem is that, uh, they're, they're, that people aren't happy. People aren't uh, 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 getting the pleasures that they want and they're suffering. Another common answer to this question, a more recent one, has to do with the environment. And uh, the, the problem is that human beings are exploiting the world and messing things up, and there are various factors that raising the probability that we will be extinct or that everything will be extinct, that, that will destroy the planet. Okay, so there's an environmental crisis, and this needs to be addressed. This is the basic, the, the, the most pressing problem facing us, the threat of extinction. So what would be the solution? Well, the solution has to come from science for the naturalist. Fundamentally, it has to come from science and from human beings cooperating and, and agreeing uh, on what science tells us and how we should move forward. So the solution to the problem would be happiness and security through scientific technologies. If people are suffering, then new scientific technologies can take away that suffering or protect us from suffering or protect us from disaster. But in short, the answer is that science is our savior. Science is the savior in this scheme because there's nothing else. Well, how can we critique this worldview of naturalism then? We've seen this is how it breaks down. Uh, these are the different elements of this worldview. And to some extent, there's a, there's a degree of coherence as certain uh, aspects of this worldview support other aspects of the worldview. But let's now apply a couple of those tools that I talked about this morning. And for the sake of time, I'm going to limit this to just two tools. We're going to apply the tool of explanation and the tool of hope to this worldview to evaluate it. So start with tool, uh, it was tool number two in the list that I gave this morning, the tool of explanation. We can ask of any worldview, does it explain things and does it explain them well? There are some basic things that we take for granted and we have to ask the question, can this worldview explain some of these basic things? Well, here's a basic thing. The universe exists. In fact, something exists. Something exists. That's one of the most basic questions that philosophers ask. Why is there something rather than nothing? Why does anything exist at all? Now, one fundamental question is, why does the universe exist? Why is there a universe at all? The Christian has a ready answer to that. The universe was created. The universe was brought about by an eternal, necessarily self-existent God. Uh, there's a doctrine of creation. But for naturalism, of course, they doesn't have that answer open to it. And the universe itself is a contingent thing. The universe didn't have to exist. Any material thing might exist or it might not exist. It doesn't have to exist. And the universe, on this view, is just one big physical material thing. So how does naturalism explain the existence of the cosmos, the existence of the universe? Well, the short answer is it can't. It can't. You've only got two, two options. Either the universe explains its own existence, which is incoherent. A universe can't create itself out of nothing. Or you have to appeal to something beyond the universe to explain it. 
But on the naturalist view, there is nothing beyond the universe, because by definition, for the naturalist, the universe is all there is. So there's nothing to explain the universe. The universe becomes fundamentally inexplicable. The existence of the universe is fundamentally inexplicable on the naturalist worldview. And naturalists will typically just say, well, you shouldn't be answering, asking those sort of questions. That's the sort of question that doesn't have an answer, which is really just a cop-out. But it's not just that the universe exists. It's a particular kind of universe. It's an orderly universe. It's a law-governed universe. It's a rational universe. We can apply reason to understand the universe, and there are fundamental natural laws that we can discover about the universe. The universe could have been completely chaotic and unpredictable, but it's not. It's an orderly universe, a law-governed universe. It's actually a very finely-tuned universe to support life in general, and to support our existence as conscious, intelligent human beings. How does naturalism explain that? Again, it can't, because there's nothing outside the universe to explain why it would be an orderly universe in the first place. Again, this is a place where the naturalist has to just sort of shrug his shoulders and say, it just is. It just is that way. But of course, that's not an explanation. That's just in denial about the fact that there isn't an explanation. So the orderliness of the universe uh, is, is, uh, is something that naturalism can't even explain in principle. And then, furthermore, there's the intelligibility of the universe. That is, the fact that we are able to rationally understand it. Why is there a universe that is rationally understandable at all? The universe has a rational order to it that is accessible to our minds. So there must be some sort of correspondence between the way that our minds are ordered and the way the universe is ordered so that we can grasp it, so that we can understand it, so that we can make sense of it. In fact, that's a basic, um, that's a basic assumption of science itself, that the universe is rationally intelligible, that it's understandable, that we can apply our minds to see how it works and make sense of it and make predictions. But again, how does naturalism explain this? There's no explanation because there's, there's no God who could bring order and intelligibility to the universe and could give us rational minds that, that line up with the way that the universe is, that give us, uh, give us um, insight into the structure of the universe. So naturalism actually really fails. And there's quite an irony here that it claims to be the, the purely rational and scientific worldview, but these fundamental questions about the universe and about our ability to understand it, it has no explanation for because... The universe is all there is. Let's turn now to another tool, the second tool, the tool of hope. Remember I said uh, we can ask of a worldview, does it give hope? Does it give hope in the present, in the face of suffering? Does it give hope for the future, in the face of, of death, in the face of extinction? Well, the naturalist worldview really doesn't offer any hope at all. On the naturalist view, everything is ultimately doomed to extinction. Every living organism is going to die out eventually, and the entire universe is going to basically run down into what is called heat death. It's the universe is going to cool down, and all life will be extinct, and all the lights will go out. All conscious beings will disappear, and that will be the end of it. Nothing will be left. Many atheists try to be upbeat about this, you know. Uh, not that they think they can beat the odds, but it's sort of, um, you know, well, at least we're here now, so, so let's try and enjoy ourselves while, while we are here. But again, there's an element of denial here. And uh, sometimes you come across an honest atheist who's willing to state things as they really are, given their worldview. They're willing to follow the consequences of their worldview. They're willing to tell it like it is, at least as they see it. And one such atheist was Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell 
uh, was a, um, a very uh, influential British philosopher of the 20th century um, who, who pioneered a number of ideas in the philosophy of language, philosophy of mathematics, but he was an atheist, uh, and a very vocal atheist, and a very vocal critic of religion and Christianity in particular, um, and he advocated for atheism, but he was also quite candid uh, about his worldview. And what I want to read to you is an excerpt from a lecture he once gave that was then, then became an, a published essay entitled A Free Man's Worship. He regarded himself as a free man, free from religion, free from superstition. Well, what kind of worship would such a man have? Well, this is a famous passage. You may have heard this before, but let me read it to you. The, the grammar of it is a little complex. It's a long sentence, um, but hopefully you'll get the point of it. So let me read it to you. He says this, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Let me boil that down for you in a shorter version that's not quite so elo eloquent, but gets to the point. This is what he's saying. Hopelessness is our only hope. Hopelessness is our only hope. And he's just one example of a number of atheists who have been willing to state quite candidly the existential implications of their worldview, that nothing is going to ultimately last, nothing has any ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose, it's all going to be reduced to rubble, any achievement will ultimately count for nothing. There's no life beyond the grave, there's nothing ultimately to hope for. That is the true implications of the naturalist worldview. And interestingly, I know a number of people who had that worldview and they couldn't live with it. They thought it was very rational, but in terms of their actual ability to, to live with the world, they, they realized that it was, it was not a worldview that they could actually come to terms with, and that opened them up to consider alternatives. And some of the people that I'm thinking of right now actually came to Christ through, this, through realizing that naturalism didn't really promise anything worthwhile at all. It, it wasn't going to meet their real yearning for hope in this world. There are other reasons they changed their minds, but that was a big one. Okay, well, let's turn now from naturalism to a second worldview, uh, which is also uh, quite pervasive in our society today, and uh, not many people know the name of it or recognize it when it appears, but uh, once you once you uh, understand it uh, and recognize some of its characteristics, you'll start seeing it all over the place. It's called pantheism. Pantheism. And the basic idea, again, is pretty simple. It's this. All is one, and all is God. All is one, all is ultimately one, and all is God, all is divine. According to pantheism, 
There is no creator God who is separate from the world. Remember I talked this morning uh, in the, in the uh, message, in the morning service, about Paul's sermon in Athens and how he lays out a biblical worldview. And one of the basic components of this biblical worldview is that there is a transcendent creator who creates the world. The world is dependent on God. God is not dependent on the world. There's a clear distinction between God and the world, the creator and the creation. And the essence of idolatry is to confuse the two. Well, according to pantheism, the two should be confused. The two are ultimately one. God and nature, God and the universe are ultimately one. There's no creator-creation distinction. Pantheism has historically been most prominent in Eastern religions. Uh, Not all Eastern religions are pantheistic. Uh, Some people make that error. There's actually quite a bit of diversity among Eastern religions. But certainly many of them, or many manifestations of them, are ultimately pantheistic. But even though it's, it's been dominant in the East, it has made significant inroads into the West through what is called New Age spirituality. You've probably heard of the New Age movement and New Age writers. And this worldview of pantheism has been reflected in many, many books and movies and TV shows, including this one. Maybe remember this one. Anyone name the movie? Avatar. Avatar. Remember when it, when it came out? 2009. Nearly, nearly 10... Well, yeah, 10 years ago. 10 years ago, this, this, this movie came out now, so it's kind of dated. I think I heard they're going to do a sequel. Did anyone else hear that? I suppose it's inevitable. I mean, they always do a sequel sooner or later. But if you remember the movie at all, there are actually a lot of pantheistic themes in this movie. The idea was that all life is interdependent and all life is sacred. All life is sacred, and uh, when, when people died on this planet, these uh, Navi um, organisms, these Navi people, when they died, they were absorbed into the tree of souls, and they became part of nature again. There was this sort of mother nature idea that you would be reunited with at the end. And there was a very, very in, uh, strong environmentalist political message behind it as well, that we shouldn't be ravaging nature. There's something sacred about nature itself, and we should be leaving nature to its own devices rather than, rather than um, exploiting and trying to conquer nature. All nature is sacred. That was one of the themes of this movie, and there are others like it. There are many people today who hold to a pantheistic worldview without even knowing the word, pantheism. You don't need to know the word to to actually have been influenced by that worldview. And often it comes through these uh, New Age uh, writers, um, such as this guy, Deepak Chopra. You've probably heard of him. Deepak Chopra is an Indian-born a uh, former endro- endocrinologist, he actually has um, medical qualifications, but he turned to alternative medicine, advocating that, and now has become something of a new age guru. He's written more than 65 books, with 19 of them being New York Times bestsellers. They've been translated into 35 languages. He sold more than uh, 20 million copies worldwide. He's a big influence. I've met people who, who I've asked them what they believe about this, that, and the other thing, and I said, you, you read books by Deepak Chopra? Like, yeah. How did you know? Well, you, you, you start to pick up these ideas, and uh, you realize that people have been getting them from certain sources. Many of the ideas and the self-improvement techniques that he advocates have their roots in, in Eastern religion, particularly Hinduism. And uh, interestingly, Chopra has been quite 
critical of the worldview of naturalism. He sees his worldview as an alternative to the naturalist worldview of the new atheists and those guys. So you've got a sort of battle going on between the new ages and the new atheists on their two worldviews. Another well-known and influential advocate of pantheism is this fellow, Eckhart Tolle. His best-selling book, The Power of Now, was published back in 1997, so that's, that's really uh, dated now, although it's still a very popular book, and he's written others since. According to Toller, this book that he wrote aims at, quote, the transformation of human consciousness. The transformation of human consciousness. He wants to give his readers, quote, a taste of enlightenment. A taste of enlightenment. That's uh, that Eastern idea there. And his book is, is basically a blend of uh, sort of psychobabble, self-help techniques, um, but also an eclectic New Age spirituality. Some people um, called it a repackaged Buddhism. Um, and there's certainly a lot of Buddhist ideas in there as well. But again, uh, that book, you may even see on the title there, sold uh, two million copies and probably more since, uh, since I put this slide together. So he's, he's clearly onto something. But who do you think is the most influential advocate of New Age spirituality today? most influential advocate. Bingo. There she is. The only reason, really, that Toller's book took off was because Oprah featured it in her uh, book club on her, on her show. And uh, so no, no wonder he, she gets a hug from him. Uh, he's very thankful to her. And she's, she's basically um, promoted uh, a pantheistic worldview. Again, she doesn't use the term, but uh, has influenced uh, a lot of people through New Age ideas drawn from various Eastern philosophies. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's take a closer look now at the worldview of pantheism. And again, we'll break it down using this five-fold scheme of the T-A-K-E-S, uh, theology, anthropology, knowledge, ethics, and salvation. The worldview of pantheism. So starting with theology then, what is the view of God on this worldview? Well, we already stated it. According to pantheism, all is God. That's what pantheism literally means. It comes from two Greek words, one meaning all and the other meaning God. So it's literally all Godism. Everything is God, everything is divine. And pantheists will often say, not exclusively, but they will often say that all is ultimately one as well, what is technically called monism. Monism is that everything is ultimately one, unity. And certainly on this worldview, there is no creator-creation distinction. There's no creator God who is distinct from his creation and independent of his creation. There's nothing like that. There's just God and the, and the universe, ultimately one. What about anthropology? What's the view of mankind uh, that pantheism promotes? Well, typically, pantheists will say that we are essentially good because we are part of nature and nature is sacred and we are essentially divine as well. Think, of, think through the logic. If all is God, then we are God. We have to be part of the all. We are part of the universe. And if the universe is divine, then we have something divine in us. Uh, we may not be completely divine. Many pantheists will say that the universe is sort of developing. God is, in a sense, growing and progressing, and we are part of that process. So we, are, we may not say that we're completely divine, but we are potentially divine. We have a divine spark in us that if we cultivate, we have the potential to be divine beings. It's very common in, in the pantheistic worldview and in, in this New Age spirituality. What about knowledge? How do we know what we know? 
What is very common among those who espouse a pantheist worldview is that there is a higher kind of knowledge, a spiritual knowledge that goes beyond mere scientific knowledge. This is what Deepak Chopra has argued. He said, well, I've, I've, I've studied traditional medicine and I've realized that it can't answer all our questions and there's a, another sort of medicine, alternative medicine, that takes us beyond what ordinary science can tell us. There's a higher knowledge that we can access if we go beyond our senses. And so uh, there are various techniques such as spiritualism or mystical practices that will put us in touch with the deeper reality beyond the immediate physical realm of our five senses. A higher knowledge that can be attained through various spiritual practices. And many of these, from a Christian perspective, we, we would call occult practices, trying to get in touch with spirits and uh, the other side and all that. What about ethics? What's the view of ethics in the pantheistic worldview? Well, again, the pantheist has to say there are no transcendent moral values. There's no God, there's no personal God uh, distinct from the universe who gives us a divine moral law that, that, as it were, imposes a law on the universe because there is no such God, according to pantheism. So here, actually, pantheism and naturalism have something in common. They both deny that there's a transcendent personal God who, who, who gives us uh, the values, the moral direction, the moral order in the universe. So instead, they have to adopt another ethical system, and you, you get different answers to this question among different pantheists, but a very common theme is that whatever our moral system ought to be, it ought to be egalitarian and environmentalist. Egalitarian in that everybody should be treated uh, equally in the sense that there, there should be no hierarchies, there should be no real distinctions, everyone should be treated on, on an equal basis, so whatever your, um, whatever your sexual orientation might be, whatever your religion might be, whatever your ethnicity might be, everybody has to be treated on an exactly equal playing field, and no, no discrimination is really the, the, the um, argument here. That any kind of discrimination uh, would be unethical. And again, this is coupled with a strong environmentalist message, because if nature is divine, then we shouldn't be exploiting it. We should be, in a sense, worshipping it. If nature is divine, then we should be directing our worship towards nature. So there's a strong environmentalist ethic there as well. Lastly, salvation. What is the problem and what's the solution? What is the basic human problem and what's the solution? Again, you get different answers here, but some of the common answers you would get among those who have been influenced by pantheism would be that our fundamental problem is intolerance. We're not tolerant of one another. We, we make judgments about one another. We discriminate. Or ignorance is another answer. Uh, we don't understand the true nature of things. We don't understand that all is one. We make distinctions. We, we, we are deceived by our senses. We don't recognize the ultimate unity of all things, so we would need enlightenment on that view. Or another answer is that we are spiritually immature. We haven't reached our full spiritual potential. We haven't become fully divine in the way that, that, that we ought to become divine. Well, if these are the problems, intolerance, ignorance, spiritual immaturity, then the solution is going to be to promote tolerance, absolute tolerance, in fact, uh, to try to achieve enlightenment through various spiritual practices and to attain some degree of spiritual transformation. This is where the self-help movement comes in. So, you know, if you go into Barnes & Noble and you go to the section that's entitled self-help, what you are going to get there typically is not copies of the Bible. 
you're going to get copies of uh, Deepak Chopra's books and Eckhart Tolle and uh, all of these new age gurus, spiritual transformation to attain spiritual maturity, to take us to the higher level of the divine. So here's an overview of the worldview of pantheism, how it breaks down in these five areas. And you can, again, you can see there's a degree of relationship. Uh, the fact that they deny that there's a transcendent God means that they, they have to adopt a certain kind of ethical outlook. And, and so you see how these five areas relate to a degree. However, it's not completely coherent uh, when you put all the pieces together. So that brings us to, to the uh, to the point of evaluation. We've, we've analyzed this worldview. Now let's apply some of these tools, these worldview evaluating tools or worldview testing tools to them. This time I'm going to use the other two tools just for the purposes of illustration to see how these work. Starting with the tool, the first tool I listed, which is that of coherence. Testing the coherence of a worldview. The reality is that the theology of this worldview does not comport well with its ethics. Once you take a closer look, there's a, there's a conflict between the theology and the ethics. According to this worldview, there is no transcendent personal creator. So there's no divine moral lawgiver who, who brings some moral absolute order to the universe. And yet, at the same time, when it comes to ethics, although pantheists often espouse a kind of moral relativism and a moral subjectivism, they still hold to some moral absolutes. And usually the moral absolute is tolerance. Tolerance tends to be a moral absolute for pantheists. The one thing you cannot compromise is tolerance. Everyone must be tolerant of everyone else, which basically means not criticizing, not making judgments, not making any kind of discrimination. But why should we be tolerant? That's a moral precept for the pantheist. We should be tolerant. Everyone should be tolerant. But why? Why should we be tolerant? If that's a moral obligation on us, where does it come from? We, we, we ask the question, says who? By whose authority should we be tolerant of one another? Is there some higher authority that we must bow to who tells us that we must be tolerant? Well, on the pantheist worldview, no. There is no higher authority. There is no moral lawgiver. So on the one hand, they want to affirm that there are some absolute moral obligations, and yet they can't explain where those moral obligations would come from. You need some sort of transcendent moral authority in order to ground those, uh, those moral absolutes. And we can also ask this question. If we are supposed to be absolutely tolerant, does that mean that we must tolerate intolerance? If we're going to be absolutely tolerant, then should we also tolerate intolerance? My wife was driving around uh, in Charlotte one day, and she came up behind a car uh, that had a bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker said, intolerance will not be tolerated. Intolerance will not be tolerated. I, I, I bet money they also had one of those coexist stickers as well. Um, she doesn't remember that, but I would bet money on it. But the person who had that bumper sticker probably thought that was really clever. <laughs> You're really witty. Intolerance will not be tolerated. But it's not witty. It's self-defeating. It's incoherent. If, tolerance, if intolerance will not be tolerated, then you are being intolerant towards intolerance, in which case you are not tolerating something after all. So the idea of absolute tolerance is, in fact, self-defeating. Everyone has to be intolerant of some things, such as intolerance. 
So there's some real problems of coherence in this worldview once you start to probe a little deeper. What about the tool of livability? Let me turn to that tool. This was tool number three in the list. Livability. Uh, can, you, can you live out this worldview in practice? It may sound good in theory, but is it something you can consistently live out every day? Well, again, there's some real problems for pantheism here. If pantheism were lived out consistently, it would lead to moral anarchy. It would lead to moral anarchy. Because if all is divine and all is one, then it follows that everyone is divine. And if everyone is divine, then everyone is their own moral standard. If I'm divine, then you have no right to criticize me. You have no right to judge me. You have no right to impose your values on me. And the same goes for everyone else. If everyone is divine, then everyone becomes their own ultimate moral standard, which leads to moral anarchy. And in fact, if all is divine and all is one, if everything is, if, if all is God, then ultimately there's no distinction between good and evil. And this is really where many Eastern religions have gone. They've said that enlightenment allows you to transcend even the distinction between good and evil. Even that distinction between good and evil is illusory. It's not the way things really are. And if you follow through the implications of pantheism, then even the distinction between good and evil uh, is, uh, is illusory. Uh, it dissolves away, and you're left with not just moral anarchy, but in fact, moral nihilism. Let me read to you a quotation, and then I'll tell you who it's from. Someone said this, If all is one, then nothing is wrong. If all is one, then nothing is wrong. Those were the words of Charles Manson. Charles Manson, the notorious uh, serial killer. Um, but he... He was reasoning out of a pantheistic worldview. Now, it's not to say that all pantheists are you know, going to closet serial killers. That's not the point here. But he was following through the implications of his worldview. He believed that all is one, and he drew the conclusion that then nothing is wrong. There's nothing, ultimately, uh, to distinguish between good and evil, between moral right and moral wrong. He was a very disturbed individual, but on that point, he was actually thinking quite logically in terms of his worldview. So we can see that there are some real problems with pantheism as well. And, and thankfully, uh, most people who hold this worldview don't hold it consistently, uh, and that's how they get by in life. They still make distinctions between right and wrong. Uh, they don't treat everyone as if uh, they are equally divine or anything like that. Um, but it's a happy inconsistency with their worldview. They can't live it out consistently in practice. Okay, well, let's now turn to the topic of uh, evangelism, how we might use some of this material in the task of evangelism, sharing the gospel. This morning, if you were here this morning in the first session, uh, I pointed out that changing your entire worldview is pretty much amount, it pretty much amounts to a religious conversion. To change your entire worldview amounts to a religious conversion. And, in fact, becoming a Christian today usually involves that. In a post-Christian culture, most people who come from an unchurched background, when they become believers, that involves an entire conversion, a change of worldview. There's more than that going on, but not less than that. Now, here's the thing. We cannot bring about a religious conversion. Biblically speaking, it's not within our power to, to bring about a true 
spiritual conversion. That, that's God bis- God's business. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But we do have a role to play. We don't just sit back and wait for God to sort of zap people and change their hearts and uh, then they start coming along to church. We have a role to play. We preach the gospel. We share the gospel with people. And we try to persuade people. Our task is to engage in persuasion. Uh, This is what the Apostle Paul did. We we read over and over. As he went from place to place, he reasoned with people and he tried to persuade them of the truths that he was proclaiming to them. And so we try to persuade people to, to embrace Christ, to put their faith in Christ, and to repent. And partly this involves giving reasons, giving people reasons to change their mind, giving reasons to rethink their view of the world, giving them reasons to put their trust in Christ. And these tools that I've talked about, these worldview testing tools, can help us to give people reasons that will be part of the process of persuasion, persuading them to rethink their own worldview and to reconsider the Christian worldview. But let's be honest, evangelism is hard. Evangelism is hard, and it's not getting any easier. It's getting harder and harder in our culture. There are two major challenges that we face in our culture today. The first challenge is what I would call incomprehension. Incomprehension. I don't understand. We share the gospel with people, and they just don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to them. This wasn't so much a problem, maybe too a generation or two ago, because people had a sort of framework for understanding the gospel, but now not even that is there. People today don't even have the right context, the right framework for understanding the gospel. Let me read to you a quotation from D.A. Carson uh, from his book, The Gagging of God, which is a a superb book, um, a very long book and a very complex book, but I'm just going to read you a short portion of what he says on this topic. Carson writes, The good news of Jesus Christ is virtually incoherent unless it is securely set into a biblical worldview. Paul, in Acts 17, he talks about what I talked about this morning, Paul's message in Athens. Paul, in Acts 17, felt it necessary to establish an entire framework, a framework very largely at odds with the various outlooks of paganism, if the gospel of Christ was to be understood and accepted on its own terms. If we have trouble coming to terms with this, it may be because few Americans have been taught to think in terms of worldviews. That's what Carson says. If we have a problem with not understanding why people don't get the gospel today, it's because we ourselves have not been taught to think in terms of worldviews and how they affect people's understanding of things. So the problem of incomprehension arises because the gospel only makes sense in the broader context of a biblical worldview. And that's one reason why it's important to talk about worldviews. But the second challenge is that of indifference. Indifference. Not, I don't understand, but I don't care. I don't care. You've probably found this yourself. Very common in a postmodern culture. People just sort of shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, I'm, that sounds great for you, but I'm just not interested. I'm just not interested. Part of the reason for this indifference is because, for the most part, people are very comfortable as they are, or at least as they think they are. They are comfortable in their worldviews. They're comfortable the way they see the world, and Certainly in the West, with all the affluence and prosperity that we have, they're just comfortable with their lives. They've got their, they've got their iPhones, they've got their TV shows, they've got the good food, the groceries, and so forth. Why, why would they need to change things? Why would they change their outlook? Remember I said this morning that changing worldviews is like moving home. 
That's how traumatic it is. It's like up and moving home. Well, imagine that I came to you, maybe I came to, came to your front door, and I said, uh, it's time for you to move home. I want you to up and relocate to another home that I have got ready for you. I've got this great home. Why don't you up and move? Well, you'd be pretty reluctant. I think you might say, well, you know what? I'm quite happy in my house right now. I'm quite comfortable. I'm, you know, I've, got, I've got used to it. I've made it my own. Why would I move? Well, suppose I showed you then, I took you around your home, and I showed you that actually your roof is leaking badly, your walls have dry rot, your foundations are collapsing, and the woodwork is filled with termites. In fact, this is your home. You just didn't realize it. You hadn't noticed that your home was actually in a dangerously dilapidated state, that it all had all kinds of problems. Well, if I showed you that, then you might be more interested in taking up my invitation, right? Well, nobody moves home unless there's good reason, and it's the same with worldviews. No one does it unless there's good reason to. And uh, we can show them that there are problems with their worldviews, problems that actually they ought to be much more interested in, much more concerned about than they are. And in fact, we can even show them to, to a degree they're already squatting in another house, our house, the Christian house. Because actually, a lot of the things that they do uh, depend on a biblical worldview rather than the worldview that they espouse, the worldview that they claim to follow. So how can we put this into practice? How can we apply some of this worldview thinking for the purposes of sharing the gospel and opening up conversations and overcoming these problems of incomprehension and indifference? Well, let me give you uh, what I call three steps for worldview evangelism. Three steps for worldview evangelism. This three-step approach will allow you to use your worldview knowledge and to address these two problems of uh, incomprehension first and indifference second. So what are these three steps? Here's the first one. Worldview awareness. Worldview awareness. Here, we want to introduce the person to the idea of a worldview, because most people are not familiar with the term, they're not familiar with the idea, they've never really thought about what it means to have a worldview or what kind of worldview they have. So we want to somehow raise the issue of people having different worldviews and how important it is. Now, the trick is to do this in a natural way. You can't just sort of plow into a conversation and say, hey, let's talk about worldviews. Whoa, wait a minute, where did that come from? No, you need to introduce it into, into an existing conversation by showing its relevance. So suppose you're having a conversation with someone and you, you, you tell them that you're a Christian and they might say, well, yeah, that's fine for you, but um, I'm not really into religion. What you might say is, well, I don't think of Christianity as a religion. I actually think of, of it as an entire worldview. Oh, wait a minute. Well, what's the difference? What is a worldview? Maybe you've said something interesting. Now you've got a chance to talk about what it means to have a Christian worldview and to contrast it with the other person's worldview. Or suppose um, that there's a, you get into a debate, as often happens, with someone who's got a different political view. Maybe it's over the issue of, of abortion or over same-sex marriage or one of these issues, or maybe even issues like, like health care and uh, basic rights and so forth. You might say at some point, well, you know, the reason we're so diff we have such different views on this, the reason we can't really find any common ground on this is because we have fundamentally different worldviews. Oh, what do you mean? Okay, now you're up and running. Now you can talk about the deeper issue. 
the issue of the underlying worldviews that direct these, these more surface-level disagreements about moral and political issues. There are a number of ways that we can introduce the topic of worldview into a conversation. You just have to be creative, imaginative. Uh, it comes with practice. But have you ever thought about it? Have you ever thought about what it means to have a worldview or why we think the way we do? Then step two, worldview analysis. Worldview analysis. Here, we want to identify the other person's worldview uh, through conversation, through just talking with them, finding out what they think about these five areas. You know, if you've got that T-A-K-E-S scheme in your head, you can ask people questions. You know, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about human nature? What do you believe about morality, right and wrong, and so forth? And then you can analyze it using these tools for worldview evaluation, the tool of coherence, explanation, livability, and hope, for example. And so once you've come to understand what a person's worldview is, you could say to them something like this. Well, that's, it's fascinating to me that you have that worldview. You know, if I had that worldview, I would find it very problematic or unsatisfying because... dot, 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 fill it in. Because it, it seems to imply this, but that's absurd. Or it seems to undermine this thing that we take for granted. Or it just can't explain one of these fundamental facts about the universe. You're basically saying to the other person, let me stand in your shoes for a minute. Let me, let me try on your worldview and sort of road test it and see whether it's road worthy. Use some of the tools to show them some of the problems with their worldview that even conflict with some of the things that they take for granted. For example, if their worldview denies that there's any real distinction between right and wrong, then why do they make all these moral judgments all the time? Why are they always making these moral judgments about politicians or people with different views from themselves? There's a, a disconnect between the things that they do every day and what their worldview actually implies about the world. So step two, identify the person's worldview, analyze it, use these tools for testing worldviews. And then step three is what I call worldview alternative. Worldview alternative. Here, you explain the Christian worldview, which of course includes the gospel. So the moment you start talking about the Christian worldview, you have to talk about the gospel. You've got an open door because the gospel is at the very heart of the Christian worldview. And you offer it as an alternative. You explain how it doesn't suffer from the same sort of shortcomings, the same sort of problems, the same sort of incoherences and self-defeating aspects as their own worldview does. Now you're saying, stand in my shoes for a moment. I, I stood in your shoes. I tried on your worldview. Now try on my worldview for size. Imagine how the world would look if you shared my Christian worldview. Isn't it, in fact, actually more coherent than your worldview? Doesn't it make more sense of the things that we experience in the world? Moral values, our ability to reason, the beauty that we see in the world, um, the wonderful gifts of art and, and music, the gift of science, our ability to scientifically understand the world, the apparent design that we see in nature. There's so many things that we take for granted my worldview makes sense of these things. It can account for these things in a way that your worldview can't. And also, can you see how this worldview provides real fulfillment, real satisfaction? It addresses our deepest needs as human beings, our deepest, uh, the cries of our heart. It offers us hope, hope in the present and hope in the future. Can you see how this worldview answers the big questions of life in a coherent and satisfying way? Worldview alternative. Help them to see the great virtues of a Christian worldview in explaining the things that we take for granted. Now, I'm not saying that 
getting to someone to change their worldview is evangelism. That's not my point. The evangelism is just about arguing about worldviews and getting someone to change their worldview. That's not what I'm saying at all. Evangelism is fundamentally sharing the gospel with people, loving them, showing the love of Christ to them, and giving them the living water of the gospel. That's what, that's what evangelism is. But what I am saying is that given the situation we find ourselves in today, given that we live in a pluralistic post-Christian culture, Talking constructively about worldviews can be a fruitful approach to evangelism. It can open doors and it can, it can overcome, start to overcome these obstacles of indifference and incomprehension. It keeps the gospel at the center, but it also provides the broader context, the framework for making sense of the claims of the gospel. Why we are sinners, why we cannot save ourselves, why we need Jesus Christ to make an atoning sacrifice, why his resurrection wasn't just some freak event in history, but actually it's the very hinge of history itself. We need to provide the context as well as giving the gospel. So my, my, my parting suggestion to you as I bring this, this discussion to a close is give it a try. Give it a try with someone this week. See if you can uh, raise some of these issues, if you get into a conversation with someone, or maybe, maybe even, even plan, plan it to some extent. Think about, I'm going to be meeting someone. Uh, how can I bring up some of these issues? Maybe, maybe you might even find my, my book useful. Again, I, I feel uncomfortable plugging the book, but here it is. It was designed precisely to open up doors for these sort of worldview conversations. So you might find that a helpful tool. Well, that, that really covers the material that I, I plan to cover this evening, and we've got a little bit of time left if there's uh, questions, Q&A. I think, uh, Dan, did you want to come up and... Okay, so um, Dan is sort of, I think, going to maybe moderate uh, a Q&A time uh, before we, we close in prayer. But if anyone has questions about um, anything that I've uh, discussed, either in the morning session or the evening session or... Uh, need to clarify or repeat anything, then now's your opportunity. If not, that's totally fine. <laughs> Gary. Um, when you're dealing with worldview like this, well, you were talking about the naturalist. Yeah. And they're science, go on science, but a lot of science or a lot of scientific thought is what groups think or what you know, people think, and there's not yeah. real Yeah, so, so often there's this claim about science, and actually uh, it's highly politicized. Maybe this is, this is what you're talking about, when, when there are claims made in the name of science. It's very interesting how naturalism has taken on a religious character today, and um, scientism operates largely like a, a religion, uh, even to the point where it has uh, a, a cultic character to it. You know, if you, if you deny certain... Uh, doctrines, scientific doctrines, then you're a heretic and you, you, you have to be uh, excommunicated. And there, there's a priesthood today. Um, it's not, it's not the, the, the clerics, it's not the ministers, it's the, it's the scientists. It's the expert scientists who are the priests who will declare uh, how things are. Um, how do you deal with that? I think um, you, you can talk about the, the history of science and show how things that were considered to be scientific bedrock in the past are no longer. I mean, uh, people assumed that, that Newtonian physics uh, accurately described the world. Then this guy came along called Einstein and blew everything up. Uh, there are uh, other examples of scientific theories that were considered to be orthodoxy, and they've been, they've been discredited. Um, and then we can also point to, um, I think, issues where 
Um, it's clear that there has been a highly politicized um, attempt to create a scientific orthodoxy. I think, I think this is certainly true of Darwinism today, the claim that you know, no serious scientist denies Darwin's theory of evolution. Not true at all. It's rather that people who do doubt it are too scared to speak up about it. Um, but there are whistleblowers, just like there are political whistleblowers, there are scientific whistleblowers. And if people are willing to, to hear them out, then um, that, can, that can cause them to reconsider things. So, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to point to the history of science. I'm going to also point to certain scandals about where scientists have clearly been found to, to be um, uh, fabricating data or um, uh, certain published articles that tend to turn, turn out to be fraudulent. The point is not to discredit science. I mean, I'm very pro-science. I have a science background. I love science. I'm very glad for what the science has, has accomplished. But to, to challenge this idea that science is beyond question and that science is a sort of absolute authority that everyone must bow to. Because, of course, that's what politicians do now. The politicians uh, now ask the question, what are the scientists saying? Or what, what are the, the scientists that, that everyone respects saying? And that will drive our policy. Someone over there? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I think a, a good example would be the idea of human rights. You know, a lot of people today talk about human rights, and they'll claim this is a human right and that is a human right. And my strategy is to not argue about what these human rights are, but why the person thinks there are human rights in the first place. Because if you, if you look historically at the idea of human rights, they were grounded in, in the Christian idea of natural law. For example, take, take the Declaration of Independence, for example. It appeals to natural rights. Humans have these rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, okay? Um, but they understood that these were God-given rights. They were given by a creator God. Um, even if the founders weren't all Orthodox Christians, still there was a, a theistic view there. Uh, what has happened now is that people have tried to uh, hold on to the idea of human rights while dispensing with the theological foundation that gave it in the first place. So I think that's a good, um, a good topic of conversation to say, what, why do you think there are human rights? If we are just the products of blind naturalistic evolution, why would a human have any more rights than a cockroach? And, and some, some will actually follow that through. That now we have uh, the animal rights movement that's arguing that, that, that certain animals have as much rights as humans, but even there, they're not being consistent because on an evolutionary view, there's no reason to say that, that, that any one rights as, any animal has more rights than any other right. In fact, the whole idea of, of rights implies that there's some sort of um, moral law uh, that people are, have an obligation to follow. So that would be one example. Um, human dignity uh, is another, um, you know, that we should be treating people with respect and so forth. Well, where? Where does that moral obligation come from? 
folks. Mm. Do you feel like um, a great majority of teachers and especially professors in colleges today, their aim is not so much to teach knowledge as it is to get across their philosophies and things? So if you look at just some of our grade schools, you know, kids are getting passed through. They come out of grade school or even high school, and they really, they don't know how to read. They can't write. <laughs> Yeah. Do you see that in education? And I suppose that goes back to the 60s almost yeah. when, when the humanists got into a lot of those areas. I, I think it's fair to say that there is a lot of indoctrination going on uh, in, in, in schools and particularly in um, institutions of higher education. I don't think it's coordinated. I don't think there's a big conspiracy to indoctrinate people. But I do think that um, the, the idea that we should encourage people to, to think critically for themselves and reach their own conclusions is very much uh, under threat at the moment. Because uh, there's an atmosphere on many university campuses that certain, certain ways of speaking and certain ways of thinking are out of bounds that they're just, we're not even going to go there. There are certain questions you're not even allowed to ask because they're politically incorrect. And, and that is more dangerous than anything else. It's not so much the, I mean, you know, if you go to university and your professor's an atheist, of, of course he's going to speak from an atheist viewpoint. Of course he's going to say things that promote atheism, uh, as a Christian professor would. That's not the problem. The problem is when you're not allowing that to be questioned, when you're not allowing certain... Uh, what, ideologies to be questioned, to be doubted, that is when the problem goes. So, so I would, I'm less concerned about professors with non-Christian worldviews who are promoting them in class as cultivating an environment in which they, they, the students feel comfortable questioning the things that they are hearing. We have one more. There's somebody else, go ahead, Matt. Right. Yeah, that's a very common thing, um, particularly with, the, with the, the existence of the universe. You very commonly hear, well, um, uh, science hasn't explained it, uh, but, but given enough time and enough ingenuity, eventually it will explain it. The problem with that is they don't recognize that, that the question of the existence of the universe itself could not have a scientific explanation. Because a scientific explanation is going to be, be explaining something in terms of physical laws and physical entities. So um, why, 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 does, uh, why does water turn into steam at a certain temperature? Explaining that. Well, you explain that in terms of the atoms and the molecules and laws of thermodynamics and so forth, but you're explaining it in terms of physical things. You're explaining some phenomena in terms of physical things. But the, the question of why the universe exists at all 
can't have a physical explanation because that's what you're supposed to be explaining in the first place, why there are laws of physics, why there are physical particles, why there is anything at all. That if there's going to be an explanation for why the universe exists, it has to be a non-physical explanation. It has to be something that's beyond the universe and then it's beyond the purview of science if we're defining science in that way. So I, when I hear that answer, it's clear to me that the person doesn't really understand what the problem is in the first place, what, why there's such a deep mystery about the existence of the universe and the intelligibility of the universe. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. It. Let's review. Uh, I think it's helpful for us just to think through this. What does it, what are, what does it take to make a worldview? T is theology. theology. A K, E, and S. It's hard to spell that slowly. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, and, and the tools that help analyze and work through that. They are one, coherence. Two, what is it? Explanation. Three, livability. And four, and in that, we have the solid ground, don't we? We have hope in Christ. What a joy to know that and to know what the Lord has revealed to us in all of these areas. But we look forward to tomorrow night. If you're able to make it, uh, I encourage you to do that. If you've not thought about that, coming back, to, as I say, church on Monday night, this is about the strangest thing humans can do, but it certainly reflects a worldview if we come back on Monday night. I think it will be helpful, though, as we talk about engaging Islam's a very, uh, that's the topic, right? Make sure you got that. But that's a very live topic for us. We have a, a very high uh, population of, of Muslims in our area, and uh, it will be very helpful for us, I think, to think through how we can proclaim the gospel knowledgeably and effectively there, and, and, and that being, I'm certain, an illustration for other worldviews and how we speak with people. But we thank the Lord for the hope that we have and the day that we've enjoyed together as his people. We'll look forward to seeing you tomorrow night if that works. And be in prayer for the seminar on Tuesday during the day. Just pray that God would work uniquely there. We connect with a number of churches throughout the, the area and just want to encourage and build up and, and to see our um, conference here spread through to other churches, other places to build up leaders and those who are thinking through these matters of great significance culturally. So be in prayer for that as we take on that topic. Let's stand together and give thanks to the Lord. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here be